Hey everyone, you are listening to 90s DVD Rewind. We are back on track as Michael picked the movie for this episode. If you listened to our previous episode, which was Hercules, Justin and I got to choose the film. For every five Michael films that we watch, Justin and I get to choose one. So if you want to go on back, take a listen to those, I suggest that you do so. Started out with 12 Monkeys. Moved on over to True Romance, then we had Digstown, White Man Can't Jump, and then Silence of the Lambs. Justin and I then got the opportunity to choose a film. We decided to choose Hercules, and now Michael is back in the driver's seat for another five films, and this one was Sneakers. You can find all of our recordings on Anchor, that's the main website that we use. If you want to head over to Anchor, you can download the app on your iPhone or Android device or go to anchor.fm backslash 90 rewind. You can also find us on Apple Podcast, Breaker, Google Podcast, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. We would love it if you guys could subscribe, give us a five-star rating, Tell us how great of a job that we're doing. Also, we are on Twitter. At 90Rewind is the place to follow us. Give us all the feedback in the world about what movies you like, what movies maybe we're missing on, and maybe your opinions on the films themselves. Guys, a good weekend for me. How about yourself? Hey, guys. It's Justin. Uh, I'm doing well. I had a nice weekend myself. Got to drive down to Virginia and spend the weekend with my girlfriend. Um, now that I'm back, you know, back to work, uh, got a couple, uh, work softball games this week, looking, um, to make the playoffs in that. Um, so yeah, I'm doing well. So that's how you got your job. You're a ringer. Yes. Ha <laughs> mm-hmm. ha. I bet there are not a lot of engineers out there who are very good at softball. Um, no, we got, we actually got a really good team. Um, you know, more than I would say just about all of our team played, you know, baseball or softball growing up. And, you know, there's a lot of good players and good teams in our league. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, it was shocking for me to see, you know, to see that, um, you know, I'm, I'm just happy that, you know, I got some skill in that, you know, we have a good team. Uh, all right. I had a great weekend, frustrating weekend, trying to build a new computer, did not go well, happy to be out of the weekend, and happy to be talking about sneakers. We want you guys to watch the movie before we talk about it. This is the part that we always have in every episode where Michael is going to give you a lot of information, talk about the actors, talk about some of the things that went into making the film, and obviously talk about the film itself. So... This is the part where you want to sit down and watch Sneakers. We suggest that you pause this podcast, go watch Sneakers, and then come back and listen to our discussion and conversation about it. So, as always, Mike, why don't you take it away and introduce Sneakers to everyone? I will do that. This is going to be a good one. It's going to be a good week. Um, Today, we're going to rewind Sneakers, released from Universal Studios on September 11th, 1992. Directed by Phil Alden Robinson, uh, famous for doing Field of Dreams, Some of All Fears. He also directed the first episode of the Band of Brothers miniseries. 
The writers of this movie are the same guys who wrote War Games, starring Matthew Broderick, another great uh, early 80s kind of kids movie that's for adults in the vein of Short Circuit, Batteries Not Included, things like that. Sneakers has an absolutely insane cast. We have Robert Redford, Ben Kingsley, Sidney Poitier, David Strathairn, Dan Aykroyd, River Phoenix, Mary McDonnell, most famous for Dances with Wolves, James Earl Jones, and of course, Needle Nose Ned, Ned the Head, Stephen Toblowski, most famous for Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. To give you a little information about the cast, um, these guys, the, the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, the nine people I just mentioned, and you can actually subtract Stephen Toblowski out of there and, and go with eight. Between them, they have 16 Oscar nominations, three Oscar wins, 28 Golden Globe nominations, and five Golden Globe wins. And that's not counting Lifetime Achievement Awards, of which uh, Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, and James Earl Jones all have one or two. So this is an absolute all-star cast, uh, bigger than any movie we've done, bigger than, you know, True Romance had just as many big people, but not the same acclaim as these guys. This is absolute star-studded. The movie, though, did not win any major awards, uh, did do pretty well at the box office, grossed $105.2 million, which in 1992 was a very tidy sum. I believe this is the, the second biggest movie behind Silence of the Glams. Um, maybe Hercules, but I'm not even going to count that. Uh, any Disney movie is going to do better, regardless of how awful it is. Rotten Tomatoes, 78% on the tomato meter, 80% audience score, pretty close. Cinema score of A-. And Roger Ebert gave this film two and a half stars out of four. He was not a huge fan, thought uh, it was a bit contrived, not the greatest thing. He gave Hercules a 3.5, just saying. Yeah, yeah. So we might stop referring to Roger Ebert on a going forward basis. The movie Sneakers is a part caper, part thriller, part comedy. I've seen it described as a techno thriller which it might be. There, there's not a lot of thrills, not a lot of action, but it, it is a very cerebral movie. It makes you think, uh, a lot of thinking about what's going on in the world, what are governments doing. You know, pretty funny part with James Earl Jones that we'll talk about later. The basic premise of the movie is it starts with a scene from the 60s where uh, Bishop and Cosmo, the characters of Robert Redford and Ben Kingsley, respectively, are hacking into Richard Nixon's bank account and the Republican Party's bank account and basically making donations to to different organizations around the world. Robert Redford goes out for pizza. He drew the short straw. He gets home and the police are there arresting Cosmo. Robert Redford flees to Canada uh, and then we're taken to the future, you know, in, in 1991, 1992, whatever. Robert Redford has assembled a team of hackers He's operating under an assumed name because he's still a fugitive from justice. The government finds him, sends him on a mission. And of course, in a techno thriller spy caper movie, nothing is as it seems. That kind of summarizes the movie without giving away too much. As Nick said a little earlier, uh, we're going to now spoil everything. We're going to talk about everything that happens. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out. But Nick, I'll turn it over to you. What? do you think since you're most likely to be wrong let's get you out of the way 
Whoa. I mean, if going with Roger Ebert, who gave Hercules a 3.5 and saying that was a 9.5 on a rating of 1 to 10 that we do is wrong, I mean, I guess I'm definitely going to have to go first then. Um, I thought the, the... So just listening to the title, Michael, before you had even really told us anything um, in our previous episode that we did about Hercules, which was a phenomenal film... I was like, sneakers, oh, okay, like, maybe this is about shoes, you know, maybe this is about some type of fashion, you know, whatever the case may be, and when you explained what it was about, and then I ended up watching the film, I was pleasantly surprised about what the film is actually about, and some of the things that happen during the film. I thought the cast was great, not just did they, not only did they have the names, but the performances by those names fit very, very well into everything. Sometimes you have name power and they don't really get a chance to show off what they can do. Maybe it's because of the director, maybe it's just because of the character, but these guys did a phenomenal job for what the film uh, was about and who they are as actors. I loved the story. I thought it had great flow. There are only two issues that I have um, about the film, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but overall, I was very, very happy with this film, and I even mentioned to you before we started recording that maybe you should have led with this instead of 12 Monkeys for the opener for 90s DVD Rewind. I disagree. 12 Monkeys was the right move. Boo. It seems like Nick's credibility has a pulse. A little yeah, bit. right, it does. A little bit. A little bit. We'll see. A little bit, Yeah. Um, I thought Sneakers was a great movie, and to kind of hit on everybody, all the actors and actresses, I really enjoyed Robert Redford's performance as Martin. I thought Ben Kingsley uh, Cosmo was great too. I really liked the dynamic of Robert Redford and uh, Sidney uh, Portier as uh, Donald Creese, just um, the headbutting they do, uh, you know, the back and forth uh, conversations they have, but ultimately um, agreeing with one another and, you know, sticking to a plan. Um, David Straythorn as Whistler was awesome. And I'm going to get to him later. Um, you know, and even the rest of their crew, uh, Dan Aykroyd, River Phoenix were solid. Um, Mary McDonald as Liz was good. Not, you know, as great as everyone else I've mentioned. And uh, for a film that was over two hours, uh, it was very entertaining. Each uh, moment, each scene was important for the film. And, you know, to me, given that length, um, I think it's fair to expect um, filler or uh, a long buildup to whatever might happen. And there really wasn't one, which, you know, which is awesome. So, um, like I said, I, I thought it was great. And, um, you know, obviously throughout this, I'm going to get into some things, um, some performances and some scenes that I really liked. I love this movie. I have always had this on my list of favorite movies. I had this movie poster on my wall as a 13, 14, 15 year old. This was my first exposure to a lot of these actors, Robert Redford, Ben Kingsley, Sidney Poitier. Uh, I had seen Dan Aykroyd. I had seen River Phoenix. Mary McDonnell obviously was in Dances with Wolves. She was fantastic. Uh, Dances with Wolves, another great 90s movie that we are probably not going to watch for this podcast because... I don't think my cousins, Nicholas and Justin, would be able to sit through three hours of Kevin Costner Ooh. in the uh, the Midwest. Sounds like a challenge. During the expansion of, of uh, white dominance across the country. 
not not it's it's not a you know dances with wolves won a lot of academy awards it was phenomenal but it, I, I don't think you guys are the target audience let's put it that way all right i think you should test us oh boy i how about this you guys watch it on your own time and decide if you want to do a podcast about it <laughs> i don't want to have another hercules here whoa <laughs> so you don't want to watch good yeah. movies my lord Went back. This is probably the first time I've watched Sneakers in 15 years. It's been a long time. Uh, I just got it on Blu-ray recently. And I've had it sitting in a, a bin full of DVDs that I haven't touched in, in a decade at least. So it has been a long time. But growing up, this was one of my favorites. Not one that I went back and watched a lot. I Probably this was maybe the fourth or fifth time I've seen it. It was better than I remembered really blew me away moved moved its way up my favorite movie list this is pro- probably be in the top 50 maybe the top 40 not up there with the top 20 25 uh but it but it's close i i enjoyed it a great deal so justin i'm gonna kick it back to you and i think you may have foreshadowed your best performance but why don't you tell us who you think had the best uh the best job here I did foreshadow my best performance um, with what I said, and this one was a little tough for me. Uh, it's hard not to like Robert Redford and his performance, but I ultimately went with uh, David Strathern as Whistler. Really as simple as this, who would have thought a blind character could have such an impact on a film with everything he's able to do between utilizing the black box uh, determining where Martin was kidnapped and taken to with the use of sounds. You even have the epic scene at the end where he takes control of the van, which eventually leads to the crew's escape. Uh, even, you know, even though he's not in it as, as much as Robert Redford, he was my favorite member of the crew with just uh, who he was as a character and what he did. And he, to me, obviously, obviously Red, Redford's the guy. But Whistler really drove the movie with uh, what he was able to figure out and to provide to the crew, you know, given that he was blind. So um, I went with him. He stole it, man. He stole it right out from underneath me. But I guess it's a good thing that my, we were able apologies. to come to an agreement on this. And maybe, maybe Michael will join us so we can get three for three like we did with Silence of the Lambs. Um, how can you not pick... Whistler. I mean, you have the perfect setup, a blind man who is already at a disadvantage from all these other characters, and he just has some of the best scenes that you could possibly have from a character. I don't want to get into my best scene. He is the main reason why I was able to choose one scene above and beyond all the other ones, but just what he's able to do his interaction, just the, I want peace on earth and oh, well, like whatever he says, well being like he honestly wants just that. It's just a very genuine down to earth character and just what he's able to do at the very beginning. Um, when you get past the, what was that in the sixties, the 1969, uh, you know, early part to where they're going through the bank scene and he's just listening and he's able to just pick all of that out. I mean, that's just incredible. You know, whether you're blind or not, just to be able to hear certain things and you see that throughout the entire film of how he's like, oh yeah, I can hear 
the floodlights off of the exit sign and they're recharging or, oh, I've never heard, you know, that much sonar coming from a room or whatever. Like, what? Like, that's just crazy. And he's able to do that just by listening to everything. Absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And I will say it was a a really nice uh, moment for me. Hit me right in the feels because we do podcasts, obviously, and we work um, with audio and I'm the one that ends up cutting it up and putting it together for a finished product. But when they need to record, uh, the gentleman's voice to get in, he is the one that goes through, uh, all of the tape and rewinds it and cuts it and splices it together. I'm like, yeah, an audio man. Um, so that was great. That was great. But, uh, Whistler was phenomenal. I would say he makes this movie, you know, Justin, you've mentioned it a lot in the past, but he is the one that really makes this movie. There's so much that happens that without him, I don't think is even possible for the rest of those guys. I am going to disagree. We're not going to get a three for three. Not because David Strathairn didn't deserve it. He, he was great. He was phenomenal. He was a lot of fun. But one guy made one me guy. laugh through this movie and, and introduced the levity that really made it flow. As, as you mentioned, Justin, this movie had no filler. It was start to finish. Every moment counted, except maybe my funniest scene. But every moment really counted. It, it moved the plot along. Things were happening. I thought it, it was really well paced. Uh, I never got bored. I was never thinking, all right, let's move it on. And part of that was because of Mother played by Dan Aykroyd. He is a conspiracy theorist, the ultimate conspiracy theorist. And the things that he said throughout the movie were, were just absolutely hysterical. You know, there, there's one part where uh, Kreese, played by Sidney Poitier, he's like, what, are you saying the NSA assassinated John F. Kennedy? And he's like, no, he's still alive. <laughs> He talks about aliens visiting the White House. He talks about uh, the CIA overthrowing town. There's there's one one part that's hysterical. He turns to Crease and he's like, you know, cattle mutilations are up. <laughs> and Sidney Poitier just, it's clear he can't stand him. It, it's, he's so funny throughout the movie. So many good things. It's, it's classic, brilliant Dan Aykroyd. I think it might be Dan Aykroyd's best role. I, I think I like him better in this than I did in, in Ghostbusters. There's there's one part where this is when they're trying to figure out where the, uh, you know, they're spying on the scientist's room, his office, trying to figure out where he keeps his little black box with his device. And Whistler tells them where it is. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd turns to him and he goes, uh... Whistler, I hate to tell you this, but you're blind. And that it was such a great scene. He was just, you know, he talks about the NSA and NASA faking the moon landings. And it was really broadcast from California. It's just absolutely like every conspiracy you can think of. He fit in somehow throughout the course of the movie. So I I really enjoyed Dan Aykroyd and, and I would give him my best performance of the day. All right. Um, I'll say this though, Michael, in that one scene that you did reference to where he goes, Whistler, you're blind. Whistler's like, he's like, listen to what she's saying. 
and he's referencing, I believe it was a doctor that was in there and she was talking to the mathematician and she's like, I left you, you know, an answer, you know, a, a message on your, you know, your answering machine. And they was like, why would he have that in there? And then all of a sudden they discover based off of that, that it's, it's a dummy. It's fake. There's nothing in there. The actual, you know, key breaker that we're looking for is actually that box. Right. Um, and I thought that was just a brilliant scene uh, all together for them to figure that out after just right. going through uh, all the footage and coming down to just, you don't need to have all of your senses to be able to figure it out. And that's, I mean, that's why I, you know, one of the things that I, I had picked out for why uh, Wilster was right, but you know, there's no wrong answers here. Opinions can't be wrong unless you ask Michael, but I don't think opinions can be wrong here. You're wrong. Not well, there it is. <laughs> opinions can be wrong all the time. So let's get to your next potentially wrong opinion. Nick, what's the best scene? I, I have a feeling we might have the same one, so I'll let you go first. The best scene, and this this shouldn't be up for discussion, the best scene has to be when Robert Redford comes back and they're all in the apartment. They're trying to figure out what to do with this whole key breaker situation. So he calls, I believe it was the NSA. And Whistler's like, I'm going to bounce the call all over here. You know, they're not going to be able to, to figure it out. You know, this is going to be really difficult for them. And so he's on the phone and on the other, you know, end of the phone is James Earl Jones. And they have this, you know, kind of like lie detector set up. Is James Earl Jones not the greatest person ever? He's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Oh yeah. To have on the other end of that phone line. Yeah. It's really not so much that, but afterwards. Whistler goes, what did it sound like when you were in the trunk? And he starts describing all of these sounds to Whistler. Well, it's not, it's not just that. Whistler is, is jogging his memory by telling him, what about, you know, what did the seams in the concrete sound like? Yeah. And then he goes to like a keyboard and he starts playing the sound to try to imitate what the road sounded like. So Bishop, Robert Redford's character, can start to remember what was he hearing when he was in the trunk. And by doing that, they have the other guys saying, well, there's four bridges. And then they start crossing off the bridges one at a time to then come to this is where you were. You went over this one bridge in this direction. Whistler is able to piece all of it together and then find out where they need to go, which leads them to the toy factory, which is just a front for where Cosmo was hiding. But it was just incredible that he was able to start from basically just sound and follow it all the way through just by using sound to go from point A to point B and figure out where they had taken Bishop and where that black box was being kept. I thought that was absolutely phenomenal. The cocktail party was fantastic. I 100% agree with you, Nicholas. For the first time in the history of 90s DVD Rewind, we are 100% on the same page. This is frankly, I, I was talking earlier today, how do you pick from a movie that you know, uh, like I was saying, the pacing of this movie was so good. It just, it almost seemed like there weren't separate scenes. It just went seamlessly from one to the next. And, and the, the, the way the movie played out was fantastic. One of the most well-paced movies I've ever seen, especially 
for, for a two hour movie for it to flow so well. But I, I was thinking, how do you pick one scene out of that? And, and this is literally the only scene that stood out to me as, as better than the rest. So I, I agree with everything you said. I thought Strathairn was fantastic in this scene as he's he's guiding. You know, it's not just, okay, tell me what you remember. It's what did the concrete sound like? Let's play it closer together, further apart. You know, what did you hear around you? Where You know, it was just the way he went through it was awesome. Uh, I would recommend that scene to anybody that likes to watch clips on YouTube or Twitter or whatever. If you're not going to watch the whole movie, you should at least watch that scene. It was fantastic. I regret everything because that is the best scene and I did not choose it. I, I guess I what? forgot oh, about it. What do you mean? Um, <laughs> when, you know, typing my so best for scene. So, so for Justin, then we're going to most memorable scene. Yes. This is the second best scene, I guess. Um, oh. Because that scene was tremendous. And I remember watching it. I'm like, this is awesome. Just with the phone call and how intense it got as they got closer and closer to tracking them. And then, you know, uh, Whistler, you know, throwing the sounds together. Just, it is the best scene. Um, but I don't know. I I messed up, but the second what best happened? scene. I don't know what happened. I don't know. You fall asleep. Oh no, no, I watched this whole film start to end. But my scene, um, it's when um Martin wakes up after being kidnapped and he's with Cosmo. They're together again at uh Playtronics. Um, you know, Cosmo standing in the dark, comes into the light, comes into the shot, which was a draw dropping uh, moment for me seeing that he's um you know he's uh, come back into this movie you know from the very beginning and I, I i like that they still had a relationship even though it had been so long and i found myself rooting for them to get back together as partners but ultimately cosmo you know is the bad guy is the villain and uh, that's not going to happen and i i really liked um the walkthrough through his office and, and the conversation they did have because it did get deep. Um, but, you know, ultimately um, Martin's knocked out again and tossed out of a car in the middle of the road. Um, but as you guys talked, the more I thought about it, uh, that was the best scene. The, uh, the phone call and, you know, the mixing of sounds to figure out where he was taken to. So uh, I'm going to concede. You, you guys win. How interesting did you guys find it that there's virtually no action in this movie? There, there's really none. I mean, you, when you when you see a movie that's called a techno thriller and then nothing happens in terms of activity. I mean, a guy gets shot, but it's kind of anticlimactic. The car gets pulled over, uh, pretends to be the FBI coming for Bishop. They take Bishop out of the car and then they shoot the other guy who's a Russian agent. Um, that's really the only violence in the movie. I think the biggest action scene is when, um, what is it, Carl, River Phoenix's character, just comes through the ceiling and <laughs> the just, ceiling. you know, yeah. <laughs> dives on Liz to make sure he doesn't get shot. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's that's it, right? Is there is there any more of a of an action packed scene than that i guess i guess like you you alluded to earlier whistler driving the van 
I guess, is a little oh, bit of action. That's it. But even that is more. <laughs> that's great. That's more funny action than action action. And if if you notice, mm-hmm. an interesting thing about this scene, and this was a very interesting choice, when they're trying to escape in the van with Whistler driving, hope you know, trying to avoid everybody getting shot. They're not playing suspenseful music at that point. They're playing like triumphant music, like, oh, this guy, the blind guy's driving away successfully. It's almost like they tell you ahead of time, nobody's going to get shot because Whistler can get them all away without a problem. But it was, you know, I don't want to leave the best scene too far because there are a, a lot of good scenes. Mary McDonald's scenes, with Stephen Dablowski mm-hmm. playing Werner, I thought were fantastic. She's basically, Werner works at Playtronics. They've got to figure out a way to get in. And you need not just a card, but you need a voice identification to get into the building. And they've got to figure out, okay, how do we get in? So they they hack into a dating website and get this nerd guy, Werner, you know, probably an engineer like Justin. Whoa. They get him <laughs> not not on the softball team, I bet. They they get Werner, they they match him up on a dating website, which, you know, we're in 1992. Can you believe there are even dating websites at that point? They match him up with Liz and they go out on a date. Liz has to, she's got a checklist in her purse of all the words she has to get him to say with her recording in. And, and it's funny because this is where the, uh, I think this is where the, the moon landing reference comes in where they're, they're setting up the, the recording device for her. And, and mother says, you know, this is the same technology they use to record the moon landing in San Bernardino, San Bernardino, California. But so she's, she's trying to get, him to say all these different things. And and one of them, she's like, <laughs> the last word is passport. And she says to, to Werner, she's like, this is going to sound weird, but I, I always want guys to say a particular word. I just love the way it sounds. And he's like, okay. And she's like, can you say passport? <laughs> it's just hysterical. Those, the, and, and then she has to go on another date with him it, those are fantastic scenes. They really, they lighten up the mood of the movie and make it funny, but they make sense. They're not just thrown in out of nowhere. You know, it, it makes sense that this criminal mastermind would have a, you know, voice protected, you know, this is probably before thumbprints and DNA were possible. That's what they'd have now, but they had this voice signature. So they have to record his voice, stitch it together and then play it in the right order so they can get into the building to try and steal back the black box. So that that's a great scene, uh, a, a sequence of great scenes. That, I mean, those were fantastic. The, what else is, what else? I'm trying to think of something else. There's something else that's right there. Um, oh, the scene at the, at the federal building with the, the guys pretending to be from the NSA where they bring Robert in and uh, Robert Redford, uh, Marty Bishop in the movie, they bring him in and they're trying to get him to work on the job for them to steal this black box. 
they're talking to him about the backgrounds of of all the different people on on Marty's team to basically try and blackmail him in, into working for them. And Robert Redford says to says to the guy, he's like, "Oh, well, I don't work for the government, Dick." And the guy's name is Dick, but that's obviously not how Robert Redford meant it in that scene. That that scene in there was fantastic. I mean, there was a lot of good stuff in this movie and and that's what made it I I like I said I agree with Nick that the one scene stands out, but there's no other scene in the movie that even even comes close. Uh, unless you've forgotten about that scene, like some people on our podcast, at least, at least you recognize it. And you're like, you know what? I made a boo-boo and I'm going to make amends to fix it. I do have, I have, I have a question for you guys. Who did you watch this movie with? If anyone. Um, so first I will say, Michael, to add on to your scenes, another scene that I did like a lot, which maybe some people might gloss over, but after Bishop gets the box, and him and Kreese drive over to, I believe it's just this open kind of sit-down area to give it to the two guys impersonating as uh, cool. government agents. There's just a newspaper that happens to be in the yeah. back of yes. the car. And, you know, Kreese is just kind of looking around. He just looks down and he just glances to see that the mathematician has been killed. And now he knows it's a setup. And he just, you know, because you have a phone call. From your it's mother. your mother. And I'm just like, that's, you know, it's just a very subtle way to kind of just like get him over there without kind of like alerting them to the max. And then once he gets close enough, he's like, get in the car. And they drive away and they drive over to the building that Bishop had been, you know, meeting them at originally. And it's been knocked down. And they were just using some random building that was set up to be destroyed. Um... For months, they later find out. Mother tells them that it was, you know, abandoned. It was, you know, later for months. But there's that one little scene to where that hobo comes up. He goes, the government <laughs> took my home. And he's like right up in your face on the camera. I'm like, whoa. Hey, man. I thought that was good. <laughs> um, second question. Really was your only question. I watched it by myself. All right. So we're not and I did as by well. the opinions of others. Nope. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. No, I would never be. Doesn't matter if I'm watching it by myself or I'm with a hundred people. Um, as a podcaster, as a movie critic, um, everything I say and formulate uh, is my own content. Your opinions are your own. As as I've said, I would not try to cheat anyone, including myself. So, is there a funniest scene in this movie? Yeah, absolutely. What is it? What is it? All right. Well, maybe Michael, you and I might be on the same page again. I, I have, I have two that really were going back and forth on. All right. You might pick one of the two. I think you're going to go the one. How is it not Whistler driving the car? I can't think of a funnier scene to where Crease and Mother are caught by surprise by two guys with guns. They're taken out of the van and Bishop is on top of the building and he's like, all right, Whistler, you're going to have to do it. He's like, do what? He's like, you're going to have to drive. And he's kind of like, what? And so he gets into the front and so 
He's like, what do I do? And he's like, put it in reverse. And for a split second, Robert Redford then just remembers that he's blind. He can't actually see anything. So how he has to remember what gear and how how many, you know, shifting up or shifting down does he have to to get the car, get the van, I should say, in reverse. So he puts it in reverse and he's like, okay, just floor it. And so he's like, all right, I'm doing it. I'm driving. And you can see like there's like this little bit of like a smile on his face because he's never been able to do it before. And then he just crashes through the gate. He's like, what was that? And he's freaking out because he has absolutely no idea what's going on because this is all new for him. He stops, puts the car in drive, and then just starts driving towards the building. And the whole time you can just see on his face that like, again, a little bit of happiness. And then he just starts going over uh, the the bumps that are in between um, in the parking lot. And he's like, what was that? What just happened? <laughs> and he's like, you're going to go down a little bit of a hill. And it's like a steep hill that he goes down. And he's like, okay. And then like in five seconds, you're going to hit the brakes. And he just slams into the wall. And he's like, I, I think I'm just going to stop right here. I, I thought that was hilarious. I, I couldn't, I I could not think that would be funny. You know, it would just be like, oh, a blind guy behind the wheel. This is going to be a disaster. But it was really, really funny. I went with the scene where Robert Redford gets his hands on the black box within the mathematician's office and he's ready to leave. And Dr. Uh, Rishkoff comes in and she's shocked and confused to see this man. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, Robert Redford, he's mostly, you know, somewhat told what to say through his earpiece by the rest of the crew in the van, uh, and he improvises at times. And um, this combination of that along with him pretending uh, not to hear her and him uh, opening his eyes as wide as he can to buy time, just like all, all, all that together was very funny as he goes from this complete stranger to a, a trustable a likable guy and even even at one point uh you know the guys you know feeding him what to say um try to get him to say something uh inappropriate and he almost says it and 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 they kind of joke about it later that's really the only scene that comes to mind and i know nick obviously the van is hysterical that was kind to me that was kind of part of a a larger scene so maybe i consider that a moment but that scene right there uh, with the encounter with Dr. Reichkoff, uh, was my funniest. I enjoyed that scene a lot, Justin, and I, and I frankly forgot about it because I watched this what five days ago now. Um, completely forgot about that. Well, that was I'm not the only one who forgets yeah, that, about that. That scenes. was hysterical, but it it is not my funniest. And maybe I might be stretching funniest here to to not necessarily be the funniest, but maybe the most lighthearted. I think after Marty steals the black box and returns to the apartment, and this is before they start trying to figure out what it does, but they're, they're excited and basically throwing a party. And, and during this party, there's a roughly maybe 30 to 45 second shot of Mary McDonnell dancing with each of the guys other than Marty. So she's dancing with Crease, then she's dancing with Whistler, then she's dancing with Mother, then she's dancing with Carl. And I, for whatever reason, I, and I, re I remembered that scene from when I saw it 25 years ago. That is one of the, that's probably the scene that stuck out in my head the most. It's, it's the biggest takeaway from this movie that I had is just 
It's uh, Chain of Fools by Aretha Franklin, which interestingly enough, just a couple of weeks ago, I went to see the Cleveland Orchestra playing at Blossom Music Center and um, they were playing an Aretha Franklin, I guess a celebration of her life because she passed away recently. Tribute. Yeah, tribute. They had a couple uh, very famous singers in, not not pop culture famous, but you know, in the classical singing world famous. Absolutely fantastic. And they played this song, Chain of Fools. So in, in the movie, they're just, like I said, they're celebrating that they think they won. They got the box. They're going to turn it over to the NSA. They're going to get $175,000. And that's more money than any of them have made in a long time. So they're just dancing and they're sh- and they show and, and it's a cut scene. You know, it's the same camera view, but first she's dancing with Crease and then it cuts and suddenly Crease disappears and then it's Whistler. And of that scene, the roughly 10 seconds of Whistler dancing is absolutely hysterical. If you can imagine a blind guy who's never seen people dance dancing, that's what it was. It probably looks a lot like Nicholas dancing. I don't dance. Yeah, so if you did, this is what it would look like. Possible. Um, I I do have a runner-up, and Nick, this might be the other one you were thinking of. Maybe not. Um, After our heroes have won the day, (laughs) James Earl Jones shows up, and he is telling them, you know, each of them, okay, each of them gets to pick one thing that they want which James Earl Jones is not altogether happy with, but that's what it is. And, and, and Whistler says, I want peace on earth and goodwill toward man. And James Earl Jones, oh, this is ridiculous. Bishop says, he's serious. I want peace on earth and goodwill toward men. We're the United States government. We don't deal with that sort of thing. <laughs> And I thought that was hysterical because it's so right. The United States government does not deal with peace on earth or goodwill toward men. I would say, Michael, for that, the funnier part for me, um, which really made that, you know, hard to choose um, out of what I had said with Whistler driving the vehicle and the scene with James Earl Jones was when they're kind of just standing there and mother steps forward and what is the v he wants um he wants to win a bagel and he's like what yes and he just starts freaking out and then you know crease comes forward he goes my wife and i have never been to europe he's like that's nice <laughs> and then he starts listing all these places and he's like don't forget tahiti and he's like tahiti is not even in europe and then your car comes up he goes you can give us a geography lesson after we give you the box, but for now, Tahiti's in Europe or something like that. I'm like, that's just wonderful. Yeah. Uh, well, there are so many good scenes. It's, it's such a good movie. Start to finish. We, we've it's never awesome. done this before, but I got to ask, since we were all kind of on that, you know, what we think is funny and what we... Was there a bad scene or something that we sat there and was like, I didn't like that? There might be things that we didn't like, but a bad scene... I don't think there was. I don't think there was one bad scene in the movie. Um, if if you're going to add the only scene that really had no impact on me whatsoever, interestingly enough, is the first one in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, you needed that scene to set the stage for the entire movie. But, you know, the scene itself didn't really do anything for me. Uh, it, it was, I don't know. 
I don't know. I, I think uh, we haven't even talked about it. I mean, Ben Kingsley was absolutely fantastic in this movie. And he's got the the cadence and accent and way of speaking that he uses in this movie is very, very, very similar to how he talks in Lucky Number Slevin, which is a movie that we would watch if it had come out in the 90s because neither of you have seen it because you've never seen any good movies except Hercules, apparently. But in in Lucky Number Slevin, Ben Kingsley plays a rabbi who is a gangster. Uh, and And Ben Kingsley's rabbi lives in a bulletproof penthouse on one side of the street and Morgan Freeman's gangster lives in the penthouse on the other side of the street and they hate each other. But Ben Kingsley has a very similar cadence and way of speaking, you know, very matter of fact, clipped, uh, clipped speech. It was, it was, he, he's just fantastic in this movie. I think he played that role so well. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. But no, I can't, Justin, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, but I, I can't think of one scene that I didn't enjoy. No, I'm right with you, Michael. Uh, no bad scenes or, you know, there were no scenes that I didn't enjoy. I thought um, every scene, um, each moment uh, was important for this film. Um, and, you know, for the plot, for the development of characters, um, you know, which... Like I kind of said earlier, um, you know, for a two for over a two hour movie, um, you know, you you'd expect to see filler and a long buildup, but you don't see that with this film at all, which which is a big reason why this film is so great. What about you, Nick? You asked the question. I I mean, I don't think so. You know, I, I can't even just sitting there for a second to try to, you know, get my bearings and really sit and go scene by scene and try to pick something that I was just like, I did not like that. I thought that was bad. I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. I do have two things that I didn't like, but you know, that's just little things that are about the overall scene. It's not like that scene was bad. It needs to be removed and, you know, not having it would make the film better. Is this a first? I mean, I don't know if we go back and we look at some of the other ones, but I, I know that, and, you know, I said white man can't jump. I said that I thought the Jeopardy scene was bad. Could have got rid of that. I mean, Silence of the Lambs, I'm not even going to touch that. But looking back at 12 Monkeys, I think there was something that I could, you know, say was bad. What? Even though I gave Digstown a high rating, I could probably sit there and say that there was a bad scene in there. Absolutely. True Romance definitely could probably sit back and find something in there that I thought was bad. You know, even probably Hercules, I'm, if I really think about it, maybe I could go back and, nah, it's a Disney film. You can't have a bad scene in a Disney film. Tons of bad scenes. But, see, that's where, it's, see, we've been telling the people that opinions can be wrong, and there's one right there from Michael. So, yep. um, I I don't know. I, 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 I mean, I don't know. I don't think that this one has a bad scene. Not only that, I don't. I don't even think this movie has an unnecessary scene. Forget bad. I don't even think it has an average scene. No, uh, there, I don't in, think. Everything in this movie moves the plot along. There's no throwaway at all. Except maybe the dancing scene. But I think that really lightened the mood and showed how excited they are and, and really then set the tone for 
the disastrous rest of the movie. One of the things that I liked about the dancing scene was it just showed how... What's the, what, what am I trying to say here? It showed the individuals. It showed how yeah. different they were. You know, you have, you have all the different types of dancing. You have all the different expressions on how they're going about it, all the different ages. And I just think that was a great way to add more depth to the characters. I would agree with that. Justin, any, any sort of taking out scenes? Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. There is no scene... Um, that is unnecessary. You know, I if I could tweak or edit this movie at all, uh, there's not a single thing I would do, and I don't think I could say that about any of the any of the other films that we've seen. Can you think of anything, Michael? I mean, in all in in all five films that we've seen before, I think there is either a bad scene or a scene we would take out. But in this one, I don't think there's one. No, not one. That would be either one of those. I agree. I I think maybe. Digstown, you can definitely, there's yeah. a lot of filler in there. Um, white Men Can't Jump. You don't like the Jeopardy scene? I do. There's, you could trim that a I would also bit, change certainly. it. I would change, I would make it to where the two guys that show up, I would make it to where they somehow have an influence on Sydney and have it to where he's then forced to work with Billy. So they're both at being held up at gunpoint, quote unquote, and they have to now put their differences aside and play basketball to get the job done. That's what I would have liked to happen to where it makes the game even more of a, can bring people together. Um, 12 monkeys. I, d I don't know if there's anything I'd take out of that. I, I think a lot of it was necessary. Um, I, I can't think offhand about anything I, I would pull out of there. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, I, they could do away with the relationship between her and her boss. They could get rid of all of that easily. True, true romance, they could cut some out too. I don't think there are any unnecessary scenes. Uh, I felt like each scene uh, was important for the movie. And if I were to edit or tweak this film in any way, I wouldn't. And I don't think I could say that about any other film we've seen. Except Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Yeah. The two exceptions. No, actually, I, I, I take that back. I could take away Silence of the Lambs. I could take away all the scenes between um, Jodie Foster's character and her boss. Really don't need that. I mean, ha having her, I understand why she's a student mm -hmm. and that they have to establish, well, somebody sent her, but you could get rid of the scenes between her and her boss pretty easily. And I don't think it would affect the film at all. I agree. Looking back at some of the films, obviously, Michael, you know, just to piggyback off of that for Silence of the Lambs, I mean, I'm not going to nitpick through all of it because we already know that I gave it a two. If you want to hear more about that, you should go back and listen to that podcast. But we had previously talked about white men can't jump. I think that you can do away with the Jeopardy scene. I would definitely change how Sydney and Billy team up. Digstown, there's a lot of filler in there. Um, true romance, definitely scenes in there that you can get rid of or are bad. Um, and 12 Monkeys, uh, I think there are certain things that I would maybe nitpick at, but again, we're sitting here talking about that. 
And for the movie Sneakers, we can't come up with anything. Um, so I, I think that makes that, you know, I might have to change my rating. I had a rating of something. I might have to go back and, and retweak that after going through all of that. Wow. After going through all of that, I might have to retweak my rating. You changed your mind on something. Gives you I hope. I did. Mid-podcast. Interesting enough, I think now that we're talking about unnecessary scenes, think of how good Digstown is that you could probably get rid of half that movie and it wouldn't matter. And it would still be phenomenal. I, that could be, that could have been, I might've even said this during the podcast, that movie could have just been an hour long and <laughs> still been just yeah. as good. I, I think Digstown had a lot of, a lot of filler material that wasn't really necessary, but it, we all still really, really like, I think we all gave it eight, eight or more, right? You gave it an eight. I had it at a six. Uh, yeah. Justin had a six. Oh, I had a except nine. Justin. All the right. movies that we were the closest that. on so far are True or Romance. Mike, you gave that a nine and a half. Justin and I gave that an eight. And then we had White Men Can't Jump. You and Justin gave it an eight and a half. And I gave that a seven and a half. All right. So, Well, what do you give this? Let's go. Let's go right into the home stretch. What do I give this? <sighs> I... Do you, want, have do, you, to, do you want us to go first? Since I know you're you're waffling, you're thinking about making a change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give just give me a second to really finalize <laughs> on this. Just give me just give me a second. I have a number, but I don't I don't want to just all of a sudden off of emotion say something that I don't really believe. Just give, give you a second. Yeah, all right. let me catch my bearings. All right, Justin, go ahead. I gave sneakers a nine and a half. Not quite Silence of the Lambs for me. But it's very close, given all the different performances, which were awesome. Just um, the type of movie it was, you know, this um, this funky kind of genre. Uh, you know, the plot, uh, you know, extremely entertaining. You don't have fluff or some long buildup, which um, you know is a big selling point for me. Um, you know, uh, keying in on some performances, you know, Robert Redford as, you know, Martin, awesome. David, uh, you know, Strathern, Whistler, uh, you know, I gave him best performance, just hysterical with, you know, what he's able to do, um, you know, given that he's blind, um, you know, not a bad scene, not an unnecessary scene in this movie. And, um, you know, just, you know, just thinking about the movie after having watched it and even talking about it, you know, my rating has kind of just gone up, um, you know, in half point increments. You know, I was thinking eight and a half kind of when we started, but, um, you know, just the thoughts that come to mind and us talking about it and me, you know, coming to the realization that there's really not a flaw in this movie um, had me raise my score to a nine and a half. So for me, sneakers, nine and a half. I'm going to agree. I was thinking the exact same thing. Nine and a half. It's, it's not quite there at a 10 for me. Kind of as I alluded to a couple weeks ago, for, for me to be a 10, I've got to watch it at least once a year. And, and this might get there. I might start watching this movie a lot more often now. Um, I really love this movie. I, I think it's just absolutely phenomenal um can't say enough good things about it the the cast i mean just the cast blows you away they're, they're phenomenal i mean they've they've taken a group of eight or nine unbelievably great actors 
put them together and it worked and they shared screen time. Nobody took over. Nobody stole time from anybody else. Everybody had their part. I just look at the fact that, you know, we're sitting here talking about David Strathairn as the blind audio hacker guy stealing the movie from Robert Redford and Ben Kingsley and Sidney Poitier. These are these are all guys with Academy Awards for Best Actor. You know, these are guys who have been nominated a combined 40 times for Oscars and, and Golden Globes. They've won Lifetime Achievement Awards for, for their careers. And David Strathairn, a character actor, just stole the movie out from under them. But, but he didn't dominate it. He didn't take it over in such a way that everybody else didn't have their time. I mean, everybody in this movie was fantastic. This is, this is one of the, the best, most well put together movies I've ever seen. There is no, there's not a command performance, you know, there's no, um, let's use Ben Kingsley for an example. He's the bad guy. He's really the only bad guy. You know, he's got a couple henchmen, but the Cosmo character in this, the closest analog I could find for him in another movie. You guys have any idea who, who's another villain that you think is similar to Cosmo in any movie you've ever seen? Can you even think of anything? I'm going to go with. Hades last week to an extent and hear me out before you shoot me down. (laughs) They're likable. And obviously at the end of the day, they're bad people. You shouldn't be rooting for them. But as villains, I would, I would say they're likable uh, compared to other villains throughout other films and shows. And, um, they do have these moments. I don't want to say vulnerability, but, um, that I think, you know, they have moments. I think you can, um, that are, you know, you as audience, you're, you're able to connect with them, you know, unlike Thanos or Joker or whoever. Right. Um, so insane people. Yes, uh, absolutely. Insane, crazy people. Um, I'm going to say him. I don't know if that's where you were going, but I'm going to go with him. That's who comes to mind. That is definitely not where I was going. <laughs> there's one major, before we get there, there's one major difference. I think, um, Cosmo was not out for himself. He was out to make the world better. And I think that's a difference between Cosmo and, and Hades. Hades was just out for himself. That, I think that's yeah. a major difference between those two characters. Mm-hmm. All right, Nick, go ahead. So for, for Cosmo, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm going to stretch a little bit on this, but I look at him kind of as like a, I don't know, I don't want to say frenemy, but he wants to work with Bishop, even though he is the bad guy, he wants to work with Bishop. He wants to continue what he thought was a good idea, what they were doing back. And I don't know if it was the school or just a building that they had broken into back in the late sixties. And he wants his friend, you know, he's like, I'm not going to shoot my friend. You know, I'm not going to, and he, he does order the henchman to kill his friend, which clearly shows that he doesn't have the, the greatest alliance. <laughs> I cannot shoot my friend. Shoot my friend. Yeah. (laughs) But at the end when Bishop is climbing off the roof and he won't shoot him, you know, it kind of showed to me that he does kind of somewhat have a little, a little eatsy weensy bit of good in him when it comes to maybe that, even though he tried to kill him earlier and he just wants to kind of have him uh, be a part of what it was before he had got arrested. But kind of what you just said and for the greater good of the world, 
I the first thing I thought of was Ultron, but I don't know if that's where you're going with that. So that would be my guess. Bane. Bane. Not out for his own personal gain. Trying to break down everything in order to effectively start over. Just put everybody on the same plane, except maybe Bane himself. And isn't that kind of the purpose of the League of Shadows? The, the League of Shadows is out there. Anytime something gets out of control, kill a lot of people and make them start over. I, I got a little bit of an analog between, you know, it's not a perfect comparison, but to me, those two characters are very similar, both very smart, both using technology. You know, Bane basically breaks the stock market in, in one of the greatest scenes of all time. There's no money here. Why are you, why are you here? There's no money here. And uh, what, what does Bane say? What's his response? No. Then what are you doing here? It's hysterical. That's one that of my. That was a great Bane. Was it? Yeah. I can't. I can't tell. I I hear it. Go back and listen to that. I hear it differently I'm in my like... head. Um, I love the Bane character. My my wife tries to do a Bane impression. It's hysterical. It's hysterically awful. But I I God I I love the Bane character. I really like the Cosmo character. I mean I'm I'm on board. I'm. Break the walls down, baby. But, you know, I, I get Robert Redford's side. You know, Robert Redford is in some ways the same way. You know, I, I want to take the money away from the people that have it and let's put people on the same playing field and see what happens. Go from the rich and give to the poor. Yeah, Robin like Hood? a Rob. Yeah, there he's a Robin Hood character. And Bane in a way is too, except, you know, Bane is steal from the rich and give to the criminals and well, kill people. <laughs> I, I don't, if you look back other than to prove his point and that he was serious, I mean, he wasn't wantonly murdering people. That was scarecrow. He, it was kind um, of, um, in the, in the dark yeah. Knight trilogy. Uh, I, he killed the mayor. He killed all the football players. But, well, the, the football thing was to make a point, And then he was taking down authority. But the, I mean, he wasn't killing random citizens on the street. He was killing people that he thought deserved it to give the other people who were not. He was he was killing the corrupt people or the people he perceived as corrupt. And then he killed that nuclear physicist. But again, that could be also right. to prove a point. So then the bomb right. couldn't be disarmed. Uh, some, you know, obviously not a perfect comparison, similar to the Hades comparison. I agree with Hades to a degree. The big difference, I think, is Hades is out solely for his own personal mm -hmm. gain. All right, Nick. For sure. What's your verdict? So I had a number. I had a number going into this. I was really confident about this number. And we were talking about this movie having a lot of great scenes. This movie having a lot of funny scenes. This movie having no scenes that we disliked and no scenes that we would remove. And I look at this star-studded cast, a great collection of talent between Bishop and Crease and Whistler and Mother and Carl, and it's, it's so close. It's just so, so close. But I can't give it a 10. 
I'm going to go with a nine and a half. It was incredible. I I wanted to go with a ten, but there were two things that I found that I just couldn't give it a ten for. But let me talk about the talk about the good first. All those all of those actors and actresses were phenomenal. The story flows so well from the start of the 60s, hacking into everything, taking the money, accessing Nixon's bank account, all the way until the very end to where you find out that the Republican Party has lost all their money and all these generous <laughs> donations have been made to, I believe it's a bunch of things that the Republican Party would go against. I'm not big into politics. Yeah, but, it, it was environmental um, groups. Uh, Greenpeace was one of them, stuff like that. Yeah. So, it's it's you got lightheartedness, you got suspense. Again, other than that one scene where Carl is diving through the ceiling, there's no action, which is pretty incredible for a film to 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 usually rate that high. And I don't want to say that action kind of like makes the film, but usually in films today, that's what a lot of people like action, or even in films that are scary or otherwise. Uh, uh, described as other genres there's still some type of action in there literally no action whatsoever and the film was just phenomenal uh, the title doesn't tell you the full story of what it's about it kind of even just throws you in a left field because again like I said at the beginning of the podcast I thought it was about shoes <laughs> but I was pleasantly surprised and the nine and a half is, is, is definitely uh, something that I might have to revisit again. But the two things that I will say that I, I did not like. Um, number one was during the party. You know, I don't know if it's just maybe there was just a lull in the moment, but just all of a sudden Whistler's just kind of like, oh, I'm just curious. Like, I want to, you know, like what's going on with this? Like, well, I, I thought that was just kind of like forced. Like, maybe out of curiosity after you got it, you maybe check it out then to see what it is, not just all of a sudden, you know, randomly during the party when everything's almost about wrapped up. What else is a blind guy going to do at a party? I I mean, I, I get that. I, under, I understand that, you know, what else is he going to do? But I just felt like that was a little forced. And then the only other thing is, and this is bad guy 101. I mean, you get the box... You know, Cosmo gets the box back from Bishop as he's on the roof with the gun. He doesn't open it. I mean, come on. You've been you you've been conning this guy, you know, how many times? I mean, if he could have he does the trick in the beginning. Cosmo does the trick in the beginning to Bishop to where he he takes the quarter, puts it in one hand, and says, If you guess the right one, I'll go, you know, I'll go get the food. And Bishop gets wrong, but then he you realize after he opens up his other hand, he did a magic trick. There wasn't a coin in either hand, so Bishop was going to lose regardless. He could have done the same thing with the aspirin if he wanted to. It was just a reference about pain. And then all of a sudden, Bishop gets him back by giving him the fake recording box that didn't have the key breaker in it. I'm like, come on, bad guy 101 is to open the box. He had a gun. No reason not to check. So... That right there was the the little itty bitty, you know, me being picky about not giving it a 10, but a phenomenal film, an absolutely phenomenal film, nine and a half, well-deserved. I will say, Roger Ebert only gave it a 2.5 out of 4. He missed the boat on this one. It's it's definitely, definitely nine and a half out of 10 material right there. So what were you, what was your original number? And were, were you, it sounded like you were thinking about going to a 10. 
I I had it at a, I had it at a nine. Okay. I thought about giving it a ten, and I sat there and I went through it and I said, mm, I said these two scenes just kind of like, eh, I don't want to say that I'm being. I, some people can say I'm being picky. Um, I don't think I'm being picky. I just think that you know I I didn't give Digstown a ten. I didn't give Hercules a ten. I I was wanting to give it a ten. Was like mm, I don't think it's a ten. Because the other thing that I thought of, Michael, is what you had said um, in the previous podcast, which was going back and watching films over right. again and looking back at them. And I was like, okay, like films that I have given tens, you know, I'm sitting there saying I watched them, you know, over and over and over again. If someone put them on, I would not be disappointed to watch. Like if someone was like, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to watch Dark Knight. I'm like, okay, let's do it. I'm, I'm so ready to watch Heath Ledger have an unbelievable performance as Joker. Someone said, okay, we're going to watch Thanos get all the stones and kill everybody in Infinity War. I'm like, let's rock and roll. Um, I'd be like, this I'd one like, wasn't. Can we you know, watch Thor Ragnarok instead? Thor Ragnarok, <laughs> yeah, I know. Again, another film that I would sit there and say, uh, let's do it. I think, you know, those kind of films, um, it, they're in a different category. And maybe, maybe Sneakers might be one that gets there, but for right now, only seeing it once, I don't know if I could put it up there, so I gave it a nine and a half. Originally a nine, bumped it up to a nine and a half during so the podcast. So that is three nine and a halves. That is a solid movie. I, I think what that means is no matter who you are, where you come from, or even what side you're on, you're going to like Sneakers. It's a must watch. I think that we would say that this is the first time having it be so close with all our ratings that it's a must watch. Must watch. Stamp. 90s DVD rewind. Seal of approval. Seal of excellence. Let's call it the seal of excellence. All right. This is the first seal of excellence we've ever given out. Sneakers. Yeah, got to average over over a nine to get that. This is the first movie to hit there. You know, mostly because... Nick doesn't like Silence of the Lambs. Think about that. Silence of the Lambs got two tens and couldn't average yeah. a nine. He was killing it. Because of Nick's stubbornness. Like a shot. Just like yeah. his credibility. You got some back here. You got you got a little bit back. It was shot during 12 Monkeys when I gave that a five. That's true, too. That's a terrible rating. We'll, we'll rewatch. No, 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 no. I think you should. I think with, no. with some more context, 12 Monkeys is definitely a movie that requires multiple viewings. It's supposed to be watched more than once. Michael, I will make a deal with you. But you watch more Hercules. I'll watch more 12 Monkeys. We'll rendezvous Her and see what happens. Hercules is not a movie that requires multiple watchings to understand. It's been multiple <laughs> days. So like, like you said to Justin, multiple days gives you a better idea. Any, any, any upgrade on Hercules or you're still kind of where no. you're at? No, uh, nothing's changed. It's uh, average, average, very, very average. But next week, we are watching a very not average movie. We are watching a top 10. This is one of my 10 most favorite movies in the world. Um, True Romance is probably up there. Maybe not top 10, but close. 12 Monkeys is up there. Um, falling Down is ahead of both of those. So this is, for me, um, this is, you know, my, my top 10, interestingly enough, does not include Silence of the Lambs. As much as I love Silence of the Lambs and I think it's it gets a 10, it's not in my top 10. There are movies that I rate lower that I enjoy more. My top 10 is my top 10 favorite movies. 
not necessarily the top 10 best movies. This is up there in both. We are watching, directed by Joel Schumacher, released in 1993 and starring Michael Douglas. This is the first movie I ever saw Michael Douglas in. I watched this in 1994 when it came out on video, on VHS, rented it again from pharmacy my father manages, still to this day. Falling down. When you guys watch this movie, you will come away from it thinking that is a Michael movie, undoubtedly. I suggest you watch this with as many people as you can, not because it'll make the experience any more enjoyable for you, but because the most people that can possibly watch this movie should watch it. Which brings up a, a question. I actually thought of this earlier. When, when you guys love a movie like this, or Justin, when you loved Silence of the Lambs, are you out telling your friends about it? Are you going on Facebook posting, hey, just watch this awesome movie. You should all check it out. I mean, I need you guys to spread the word to your, your millennial and, and sub-millennial friends and get these movies the recognition they need. What are you guys doing to make that happen? Um, I'm not doing nearly enough. I'm definitely lacking in that department. Uh, I don't know if I got to hang up signs throughout uh, my town and the surrounding <laughs> towns, or I got to fly a plane with an ad at the back of it. Or just go to work. Post. At work. Be like, hey, I checked out this awesome movie. You, I, you should watch it. Podcast comes up about once a week with, with some coworkers, but I don't think they care enough to check us out. Um, they don't have to check us out. Tell them to check the movie out more important i have i have mentioned the movies like what we've seen and i've i believe at times um have briefly mentioned what i thought of it but i don't think it's really led to anything so uh, i gotta do a better job you do i agree nicholas what are you doing no michael uh when it comes to the podcast i'm definitely trying to advertise that but when it comes to my own uh individual opinion i uh, usually don't say much. I will say, uh, after watching Sneakers, though, I did tell my girlfriend that she needed to watch Sneakers, and she asked me what it was about. I explained it to her, and she uh, seemed like she was somewhat interested, so maybe she'll watch it. With um, you or alone? It's. Uh, it would most likely have to be with me. I don't think that she would watch it on her own, which is fine. I, I would watch Sneakers again. It's not a movie that I would just watch once and be like, oh, okay, yeah, like I wouldn't go back to it, I definitely would uh, go watch it again. I would have no problem doing that. Um, but, uh, you know, for the, the uh, what's a nice word to say about the, the quote-unquote friends that I have, uh, I don't know whether or not they'd be interested. Um, I can definitely spread the word, but they're not the brightest bulbs in the box. You need to make better friends. Yeah. My famous Twitter, Definitely. my famous Twitter line. You need to rethink Definitely. the people that you invite into your life. Mm. <laughs> well, I guess that happens when you go to Shore Regional. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I had some great conversations about work when it comes to Shore Regional. A lot of people that had gone there. You should have should have went to Long Branch, the hotbed of brilliance. No, <laughs> about no. Oh, it wasn't that bad. I just didn't pay attention anyway. I just watched movies. I went home, I rented movies from the pharmacy and watched them. That's what Nick and I were doing wrong. Exactly. 
You're playing Madden. I'm busy. Halo. Uh, I'm trying to think. What did I rent from the... I was probably renting SpongeBob stuff from the... Digimon. Store. Justin would rent the Digimon. same Digimon movie yeah. all the time. We'll Maybe that, that might going. be the next when one did if that that's come a 90s out? movie. Michael's probably never seen it. What uh, was it? Now, let's not waste our time. Uh, it's Digi. It's a Digimon don't film. Yeah, don't I've, even I've worry never, about it. That's never going to happen. All right. Man, now I want to do more Bane quotes. Yeah. Can we just do a podcast where all I do is Bane quotes? If we can watch the Batman movie. How's that? I don't have a problem with that. Batman. Do you feel in charge? You're going to go back and you're going to listen to it. It's going to sound good. One of my favorite quotes. Does it really? I can't tell. See, you know, I talked about this when we first started the podcast. This is really the first time I've ever recorded my voice. You know, since I was like nine with a with a you know a little tape recorder, and thought, "Wow, that sounds so weird." So I never did it again for thirty years. Now here I am, and I think my voice sounds really weird on the podcast. So, you know, it makes me rethink all of the uh, impressions that I do. You know, I do a good Sean Connery. I do the guys from Boondock Saints, which we'll watch soon. I'm like, well, those sound pretty good in my head. Do they? Do they sound good to other people? And it was most interesting because I said to my wife, I, I recorded it and played it. And I'm like, is that what I sound like when, when I'm just regular talking? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, that sounds completely different. That's not what I sound like when I talk. And she's like, that's exactly what you sound like when you talk. And I'm like, are you sure? Yeah. Uh, because apparently, you know, the sound is rattling around inside my skull. It sounds different to me. So... It's making me rethink. I haven't done impressions in seven weeks because we've ever since we started this podcast, I'm like, well, I don't know what I actually sound like. Do I do a good Christopher Walken? Do I do a good Sean Connery from Celebrity Jeopardy? I don't know. I feel like I have the the affectation correct, but now I don't know if it sounds right. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. No one cared who I was until I put on the mask. Is that a good Bane? Nah, Sounds like it is. That one wasn't as good as the other ones. Okay. We'll give you two and a half out of four stars. Uh, <laughs> great. So I would give it a nine and a half out of 10. I don't know. Oh, don't be Nicholas. Whoa. Maybe I have to start doing impressions now on the podcast so I can hear what they sound like when they're recorded. So I don't maybe know. next week, because we've been talking about this past couple podcasts, um, we can release some of these lists of things that we've been talking about. And I'm excited to know how many people we think should be in jail that aren't in jail. Sounds pretty much all of them. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Listen, here, here's why I'm never going to be on jury duty. If, if an attorney or a judge asks me, you know, do you think this person should be in jail? My answer is pretty much he or she may not be guilty of this crime, but they're guilty of something. So, yes. <laughs> wow. I mean, if I'm on a jury, it's I'm going to vote guilty no matter You're what. You're at jury duty? Uh, I've been called for jury duty a couple times. I've gone and sat in the room for three days and I've never been. I've never gone through voir dire, which is the process of actually choosing jurors from the pool mm. to sit on the on the jury. Uh, I've never done that. I've never, you know, I've, I've gone twice and literally sat in a room with a hundred other people and occasionally someone gets called in. I've never been called in. I, I've just sat there as part of the pool. I've never been called for a grand jury. 
Um, a grand jury is a jury that meets every week for like an entire quarter and the prosecutor brings cases and the grand jury decides whether or not to actually press charges. Mm. I've never done that. Um, so no, I, I have no actual jury experience other than sitting in the room at the justice center and having my day completely wasted. Justin. I got out of it once. Interesting. Interestingly enough, I was in jury duty. I was supposed to be there for three days. And on the second day, one of our biggest clients was in a car accident where his, his wife was driving and hit the back of a truck, uh, a big truck that was stopped in the middle of the highway. Um, and the husband went flying, was not wearing a seatbelt, went flying through the windshield. Um, so the, the third day I showed up and I said, listen, I'm a lawyer. And, uh, one of my clients was in a a horrific car accident and we have to make sure his estate plan is in order because he might not make it. Uh, and that's, you know, how I quote, got out of end quote, my third day of jury duty. It was, I would have much rather gone through jury duty. Client did make it through survived. So happy, somewhat happy ending. Justin, you have jury so that, duty. Um, that reminds me. Yes. On that note, yes, I do. Um, next month, I got to go sit mm-hmm. and uh, see if I've won the lottery. Why don't, where uh, where do you have jury duty? In Monmouth County? Yes. Why don't you uh, tell them you moved? Um, Change your residence. I, I could. If I could swing that in the next month, maybe I can get out of it. Of but, course, uh, you're, you're, whenever you change your residence, you're, very, very likely to be called for jury duty in the new place. Oh. Um, so I might not be able to escape. Um, yeah. We'll see how that and if, goes. And if your employer's okay with it, then just go ahead. Do your civic duty. Everyone out there, mm-hmm. you should do your civic duty. It is your job as a citizen to sit on a jury when called. It's the only thing your country asks from you other than taxes. There's no draft. You don't have to do civic service. You don't have to serve in the military, like in Israel, where you have to do two years, no matter what. Um, so do your only civic duty. Serve on jury duty. Okay. Well, and pay your taxes. With that, we are going to wrap up this episode of 90s DVD Rewind. The film was Sneakers. Justin, any final thoughts? Go see this film. It was, um, cumulatively, this was the highest, um, I guess, rated, ranked film from the three of us. There is not a bad part. Highly entertaining, phenomenal cast. Go see it. And I'm looking forward uh, to next week with uh, Falling Down. Piggybacking on that, if you don't have this movie, you can buy the DVD for five bucks on Amazon. It's worth your five dollars. Buy it, watch it, share it with your friends. Everybody in the country and possibly in the world should see this movie. It's that good. 9.5s all around for sneakers. That gets the 90s DVD rewind seal of approval from myself, Michael, and Justin. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at 90rewind. That's at 90rewind on Twitter. We are on a plethora of listening apps, Apple Podcast, Breaker, Google Podcast, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, Stitcher, and of course, 
Anchor are all the places that you can listen to us. If you want to head on over to anchor.fm backslash 90 rewind for our homepage, that's anchor.fm backslash 90 rewind. You can also download the app on your iPhone or Android device by going to the app store and hitting the download button. Please be sure to subscribe and give us a five star rating. We also would love a follow on Twitter as well. For Mike and Justin, this has been Nick. You've been listening to 90s DVD Rewind. Everyone, enjoy the rest of your day. That was fun.